television is where all the big risks are being taken, where the most exciting work is happening. And this is a festival that celebrates that. Finally, there is an independent avenue for people who want to just go into the TV business. It's just wonderful to have an outlet for all of the creativity that's happening in television and in new digital media right now. The fact that there's this, there's Series Fest, which allows you to put it in front of an audience and gives you a platform to put it out there. Like that's the most impactful thing as artists that we can ever hope for. Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. Today, I welcome to the podcast, Nick Morton. Nick is a writer, producer, and stand-up comedian. He wrote the recent pilot, Cooper's Bar, which stars Better Call Saul's Ray Seahorn and Mike and Molly's Luma Stillo, which premiered at South by Southwest and Series Fest Season 6, and then was picked up by AMC Networks. He also wrote the Sundance pilot, Halfway There, that stars Matthew Lillard and Blythe Danner, that went on to win Best Pilot at Series Fest Season 4. He has produced many movies, including Ray, starring Jamie Foxx, Afternoon Delight, directed by Jill Soloway, Fat Kid Rules the World, Band of Robbers, and many more. He has written for many online magazines, including Mr. Porter and The Scoop, and he hosts the popular podcast, The Drunk Logs. Well, hello, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us on our Series Fest podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you are such an incredible creator, writer, producer, and we met back in, I was trying to remember, it was about 2018, and we showed your independent pilot halfway there, uh, yep. which was at Series Fest Season 4. And wow. I have to brag a little bit because you won Best Drama and the Audience <laughs> Award at that season, so I have to brag a little bit. But maybe we could just start there and tell me what the genesis of the project was and, and how Halfway There came to be. You know, uh, I guess it, you know, part of it came from just like the evolution of television, you know, that like television was just becoming this wildly exciting place to tell stories. And here at Whitewater, we had made Jill Soloway's feature Afternoon Delight. And um, soon that premiered at Sundance and uh, we sold it. And she soon thereafter sent us the pilot for Transparent, which, you know, ultimately got set up at Amazon. And um I read, this is going to sound crazy, but I read the pilot and I was like, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, because it wasn't like I, th there was something just exciting about the way she wrote it in that, like, there were a bunch of different storylines and it didn't feel like it didn't feel formulaic in the way TV had sometimes seemed to me. And like, it didn't feel like it was, um, you know, like that, that the form was constraining. And uh, God, at the time, a friend had been in a car accident and in the aftermath, she had decided to get sober. The show, so everyone knows, is about a guy who is a recovering addict and he runs a sober living house. And basically at the start of the show, you discover that his finances are in terrible shape and he's going to have to shut the business down. And he decides 
the only way that he can um, keep the business afloat is to go to his rich mother and ask her for a loan. But when he shows up at her house, she's like completely shit faced in the middle of the afternoon and she falls in her swimming pool and hits her head. And the doctors are like, she can't recover from this accident at home. She needs to be monitored. So he moves her into his house and thereby has access to her money, which kind of uh, staunches the flow of um, uh, red red ink out of his uh, finances. And then she sets him on a path of very bad decisions that ultimately lead to him relapsing. And so at the time of my friend's car accident, she ended up in a sober living house and a mutual friend was going to visit her there. And I was like, God, this seems like an amazing venue to set a show because there's so many people from different walks of life that end up in this, you know, forced to live together. Um, and I was like, we should find someone to write it. And so I was sort of exploring it with various writers. I think maybe I even pitched it, pitched it to Jill at some point, but, um, I, uh, I wasn't sober and then I got sober. I had, you know, just whatever. I was a partier all my life and it just kind of caught up to me at some point where I was like, you know, this isn't really the life I want to lead anymore. And in the aftermath of me getting sober, I was like, oh, I started, actually, I started doing stand-up comedy and part of my, uh, set was all about like getting sober and like what, uh, um, you know, just like jokes about like sobriety, which I was shocked that I could make people laugh with it. Like it was, right. um, it didn't seem funny. And then once I started doing that, I was like, oh, I should incorporate all of this like material about alcoholism, addiction and sobriety into this show idea I had. And so I, um, I did a draft of it and you know, I started showing it to some people and and um, lots of people gave me a lot of help on like how to actually make it work because my first draft was sort of crazy. And, um, you know, eventually I got it to a point where I was like, you know, this is I feel good about this. Like, I, I feel like I can show it to people. And I gave it to Rick Rosenthal at Whitewater Films, where I work. And he was like, we should make this as an independent pilot. And then he and I developed it some more together. Um, and eventually we felt like the script was good enough to show it to Matthew Lillard, who we had made uh, a movie with fat kid rules. The world had been his, um, directorial debut. And then he had acted in a film of ours called match and he really responded to it. He really liked it. And, um, you know, once we kind of had him in like a, you know, a sort of loose commitment to, to doing it. Um, Rick had a relationship with Blythe Danner and he gave it to Blythe to see if she would play Matthew's mother. And, um, she read it overnight and was like, I would love to do this. And at that point we were like, well, let's make this, you know, it's like two, two great actors. And, you know, and then we went and sought out the, um, you know, the rest of the ensemble, the other people that live in the house, which is, uh, Isai Morales and who Rick had worked with on bad, on, on, on bad boys and um matt o'leary who had been in fat kid rules the world sarah shahi who we found during the casting process but that rick had actually had a relationship with her in the past Deshaun, uh, whose name i'm blanking on who had actually my wife had worked with my wife is a costume designer and she had been the costume designer on transparent and she had just done a show 
Tina Fey show that Deshaun was in and we met at a party and then we in a weird way I followed up with him like was like hey would you be interested in this role and whatever he said yes and he is hilarious so anyway such a it, tremendous ensemble cast I mean obviously <laughs> anchored by by Matthew and and Blythe who give just phenomenal performances or was this the first independent pilot that the company made and why did you choose to I guess I'm curious you know, what the choice decision or opportunities there were, why, you know, why shoot it independently? We, um, you know, Rick had been working on Transparent um, for uh, a couple seasons at that point. And I think, um, I think yeah, there was something exciting about him having an opportunity to actually like, create his own show, you know, as opposed to being a part of someone else's team. I think that was part of it. And then there was also the, um, we believed that we could execute it well. And so, um, you know, I think that there's, there are a lot of recovering addicts in Hollywood. A lot of people I think have tried to tell some version of this story. And like, um, I think part of us felt that like, we'll run up against that if we try to pitch it. But if we actually make the show, we can prove that like this can be funny and dark and compelling. And it's not just going to be like a bunch of addicts preaching about how their lives were changed by recovery. Um, and so that, you know, I mean, there was part of me that was like, I mean, I remember sitting after we had scouted the location where we shot, like we were having a, 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 lunch afterwards and I was like sitting with Rick and, and Jim Hart who produced it and I was like you know guys we don't have to do this <laughs> like we cannot make this like that might be the like better business move because there aren't that many people making independent pilots and you know it's you know it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky thing because if if it doesn't work how do you recoup your investment you know if you can't sell it to a network or a streamer or whatever it is you know how do you recoup and, um, you know, Rick, to his credit, has always taken this approach, like, if I wait for permission uh, to do what I want to do, I'll never do it. And so, um, you know, he had the, the courage to go and take the risk to try to actually make it and see if, if we could demonstrate to buyers that this that this could really work. Don't wait for permission. I love that. Right. So once you had made the pilot, how would that change your pitch? you know, with studios and networks? Well, I mean, so then once we had made the pilot, we had to like figure out how do we even get into studios and networks? You know, because Rick and I don't, I mean, didn't, you know, we both had come from the feature film world. So like the idea, like, how are we going to like even get in the door to, to pitch people? You know, whatever, we have relationships in all those companies. But um, we ended out, Rick gave the pilot to Michael Rotenberg, who's a manager at Three Arts, and they have a huge TV business. And he really liked it. And then he showed it to Dave Becky, who manages all these amazing comedians and actors. And he really liked it. And so they were like, we'll set up these meetings. And, um, you know, that process weirdly takes forever, like just to get people who <laughs> to pick up the phone and make phone calls. You're like, uh -huh. when are you doing it? When are you doing it? And as we were waiting for those meetings to get set, the um, the pilot got into Sundance. And at that point, um, Dave and Michael were like, well, let's just wait till Sundance, you know, because it'll get some sort of heat out of Sundance. And so that's basically what we did. And then, you know, it, it premiered Sundance. 
the uh, the sort of episodic program that year all started on the Tuesday after everyone had left. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was it was a really amazing experience, but it didn't actually generate any heat, you know, because they're just there there weren't big audiences to to see the stuff. Um, and but still, in the aftermath of that, we we came back to LA, and Dave and Michael set up, you know however many meetings you can possibly set up with every streamer we went and pitched it. And basically what we did is we, it's funny, like the very first pitch meeting was, it was at Amazon and um, I had sent an email out to everybody being like, Hey, do you think we should like rehearse this or something? You know? (laughs) And Dave was like, just take it easy. It'll be fine. And I'm like, Okay, so we're in the lobby at Amazon and Lillard walks in because he's coming to all the all the meetings with us. And he's great in a room. He's like completely charming. And um, Dave and Michael are like, let's let's talk for like five minutes about how we're going to do this. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to tell them what the pilot's about. And Michael's like, you can't tell them what the pilot's about. They're going to watch the pilot. And I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> I can't talk about the the rest of the season or the next season or the season after that without telling them what the pilot's about. Right. And Dave's like, tell them what the pilot's about. And Michael's like, no, you can't do it. And I'm like, I was like, this is exactly like, this is the most important meeting of my life. <laughs> and like, I have, I'm like, I'm like, and just as we're having this debate, an assistant walks up and is like, they're ready for you. And I'm like, Oh my God. So we walk into the conference room. There's all these water bottles set up and like we're all smiling and like, you know, making small talk. And then like the assistant leaves. And I'm like, OK, what the fuck are we going to do? You know, and um, whatever. I told them the story of the pilot because I couldn't see how you could have a conversation. You know, what are right. you going to do? Be like, hey, we're here. But like we've got this really cool pilot and you should watch it, you know, but basically that's the way it would work. And then people, people would watch the pilot and we had a Bible that we made up that sort of laid out the, you know, all the characters and what would happen to them during the course of, of the series. So, and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was exciting, but ultimately we, you know, we didn't sell, we didn't sell the pilot. Right. So pitching is such an art. I mean, it really is. I think, you know, it's amazing that you went in there the first time without having rehearsed. Cause I think we, we always say, you know, rehearse or pitch, rehearse it, know what you're going to do. I mean, you can, it's a conversation at the end of the day, but at yeah. least, you know, yeah, yeah. the beginning parts, you know, kind of know what the important points and how you're going to sort of draw somebody in. Um, what, what would you recommend, you know, to anybody listening out there heading into their first pitch? Yeah. I mean, the thing is keep it short, <laughs> you know, I mean, cause you really want to be able to like, hook them in the first 30 seconds of your pitch, you know? Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's more important that you tell a great story than that you tell the whole story, you know? So if like you can tell a four minute story that really like engages everyone and brings them to a point where they have questions that they want to ask you. I think that that's the smartest thing to do because then you can have a genuine conversation. So it's like, you know, well, what happens to Matthew Lillard's character at the end of the show, you know, and then you're like, well, I have the answers for, for, for that stuff. Um, and you know, um, 
I find as you know, I, before I was a, a producer and a screenwriter, I was a I was a buyer, and I did find that like sometimes when I was sitting in those rooms for, for features, and people would come in with a super scripted take, I'd be like, it would just feel canned. So I think you know there was something great about Dave's approach to just like just let's have a let's have let's talk to them about the show we're going to make, and you know thankfully because I done a lot of stand up like it doesn't scare me to sit in front of strangers and who are <laughs> glaring at you like <laughs> make me laugh and you know try to make them laugh so um and you know have something visual i think the other thing is like you know we're in an age where like you know having a visual presentation is essential definitely so you, you talked about being a buyer what was your first job in the industry Oh, God. I mean, my very first job, <laughs> I worked as a receptionist for a production company called Crusader Entertainment, which was Howard and Karen Baldwin, who were, uh, they owned the Pittsburgh Penguins, had started a, a film company. And uh, they had this little film office. And I, there was, I was the receptionist, but there was like nobody to receive. So <laughs> I would just sit there all day, like trying to teach myself how to type. Because the most powerful person I knew was um, she worked at a temp agency called the Friedman Agency. And like you, in order to get a job through the Friedman Agency, you had to be able to type 50 words per minute. So I'd sit there all day at my receptionist <laughs> job just trying to teach myself how to type. And eventually um, I could type 50 words per minute. And I started to go out for those jobs of like working as an assistant at an agency. And I got um, – it's funny that – my boss at that company quit and the Baldwins were like, you should take her job. And I was like, I don't know anything. Like, you guys are crazy. And I mean, it was flattering and it really gave me a lot of confidence, but I really like felt like I had to go and like learn the business. Um, so I went and got a job working at William Morris. I worked for um, Rick Hess, who was running the independent film division at the time. And um, he was great. I mean, there was definitely like, it was the like, I had never had a job like that where it's like, you know, you'd sit down at the desk, the phone starts ringing the minute you're at, at, at your station and it does not stop ringing until lunch. And then it starts ringing the minute you're back and it doesn't stop until the end of the day. And between all that, you're expected, you're answering the phone nonstop, but you're also expected to do your job and like read scripts and like keep on top of all these various projects that are going on on your boss's desk. And definitely like day four, my boss was like... I don't think this is working. Oh. And I was like, no, 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 no. This has to work. This has to work. That's terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. And I was like, just give me one more day. And then like the fifth day, it finally all started to make sense to me. And, well, and the um, speed too in an agency. I mean, it's yeah. just truly unlike, you know, I think almost anything totally. else. Um, and, and so you were re so you were reading scripts as well. And did you have a background? I mean, how did you know what to look for or what were you after? Were you, were you know, learning I, on the job? <laughs> I learned on the job. I mean, I went to I went to Georgetown and I studied um, English. And there was this great teacher there, John Glavin, who uh, is, has become kind of a cult leader there. He's like taught like John Mulaney and Nick Kroll and Mike Berbiglia and uh, Zalbot Monglij and Mike Cahill, all these great like creative people. But when I was there, he was just an English teacher, but he did, uh, he, he taught this class called Writing for the Screen. And um, you basically studied a film and then you 
studied film itself and you picked a film to rewrite. And I rewrote this film called Dead Again with Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh. And it was just so fun. And at the end of it, he told us how to like sell our screenplays. He brought an agent in to tell us how to sell our screenplays in Hollywood. And someone asked that agent, like, how did you become an agent? And he was like, oh, I was at Georgetown. I was on my way to become an investment banker and I didn't want to do it. And I had a friend living in Hollywood. And so I went out there and um, slept on their couch and got a job working as an agent at an agency. And I was like, that's me. Like, I'm on my way to Wall Street. I'm not excited about it. Like... I should just go do that. And so, yeah, I just like read a lot of scripts and watched a lot of movies and read a lot of like screenwriting books and, you know, and then watched my bosses make decisions. And really like the skill I had at the time after my year at William Morris was I was a great assistant. Like I knew how to answer a phone. I knew where every restaurant was in LA. Like I knew how to do that job really well. And I was like, I am just going to wait until the most powerful person I know needs a kick-ass assistant. And the first person turned out to be Arnold Rifkin, but I'd already left William Morris by that point. So I tried to go back and get that job and almost got it. But like, they were like, you've already left the company. Like why would we hire you? But then it was Mike Metavoy, who at the time was running Phoenix Pictures, and I got a job working for him. And he was, you know, he has a great history of just promoting assistance. And so I stayed on that desk and just like my attitude was like, I am going to just like, you know, uh, I'll do anything on his behalf and eventually he'll repay that favor. And he did in short order. You know, three months later, he made me like the junior executive at that company. So Wow. Um, you know, and then I stayed there and, you know, just like I had Marsha Nassiter was, was one of my bosses who was like the first female vice president of any studio. And, you know, she had been responsible for the big chill and so many great movies. And so I learned a lot from her and just, you know, all the filmmakers that come through a, a company like that, you know, you just have to like look at their work and it all really, really helped. I think it's so important what you bring up about also, you know, identifying the type of people you want to work with and not being afraid to go and try to get a job with them, keep your yeah, yeah. around and do and and kind of, you know, as a way to break in, right? Um, right. You know, since the podcast is called Breaking In, what do you feel like is the moment where you were like, I've I've broken into this industry. I've 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 gotten there. God, that is such a difficult question. I mean, there've been so many moments and I still don't feel like I'm there. <laughs> I mean, just because like I've tried different things, like I've tried to do different things. So, I mean, definitely like getting that job at William Morris was a huge deal. Like all those people who were in my sort of class of um, assistants have all gone on to do amazing things. Some of them are huge agents. Some of them run studios or producers, whatever. I mean, that was that was a huge deal. Um, but there was there was a moment there was a moment. There was definitely a moment where, like, when I was working at Phoenix Pictures, I worked there for five years. And um, at some point, a couple times a year, Mike Medavoy would turn to the president of production and say, I want to know what my next four movies are, and I want to know how you plan to make them. And then whoever the head of production is would, like, gather us together, and we'd all be crazy for, like, 36 hours as we tried to figure out how to what these four movies are and how we're going to actually put them together. At some point, like my two boss, Rick, Rick has who had been my boss at William Morris came over to uh, Phoenix pictures and then he left. And um, it was me and Eric Paquette were the sort of like uh, VPs at the time. 
and we're sitting in the conference room and Mike turns to me and goes, I want to know what my next four movies are and how you plan to make them. And I was like, is he talking, is he talking to me? That was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, wow, the, res- the responsibility is now mine to to figure this out. And, I, and I've had a similar I've had experiences like that along the way where there's this moment of terror that like, oh, this is all on you. And then it usually is followed for me by a sense of relief that at least I'm the only one I have to make happy now, right. you know, that like I don't have to like second guess myself because is that what my boss wants? You know, this is actually what I want. Um, you know, so that that was definitely a huge moment. The funny thing is I then made my my list of the four movies that I was I was going to make and the plan for how to make them. And I had... <laughs> I then I had Rick Hess's desk. I was sitting at his desk. He'd been the head of production. And he had this like one of those sliders that you pull out to put your keyboard on. I pulled it out after I turned in my production plan. And there was his list from two years before. And it was the same four movies that I had just picked that had not gotten made and still probably were not going to get made. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a fool's errand. Um, (laughs) That's what a coincidence. And that's that's a very funny story. It was demoralizing. Um, (laughs) So. But but you made it through. You've worn so many different hats. Is there, you know, a part or aspect that you love the best or you hope to be doing more of? I mean, from whether it's creator, writer, producer. I think, you know, the it's all fun when you're it's the best part is like working with people that you like and respect and admire, um, regardless of what role you're playing. I think, you know, it's like I mean, I love to write, but like writing on a shitty project isn't fun. Like writing with great people is fun. Like writing for people that you are excited about is fun. Um, I, I mean, I like I like to really kind of do all those things because, um, you know, when one aspect of it isn't going very well, you know, whatever, you're struggling because your producing projects aren't coming together. It's amazing to be able to go down to the comedy store (laughs) and do eight minutes of stand-up because you're like, that's immediate. Like, you know, that's, you're making something as you walk on stage sometimes. So I think like having a nice mix of of projects really, helps keep you alive, you know, and, and, you know, one bucket of stuff helps sort of sustain the other bucket of stuff. You know, you just get, get energized by working in different aspects of it. And so when you come back to your producing stuff, you're like, oh, I have this new perspective on like what this actually means. Definitely. Well, so Halfway There was not your only independent pilot you made, as we had the privilege of showing a second independent pilot you made called Cooper's Bar at season six. Will you tell us? And that had a very different uh, ending for it, I believe. Um, yes, yes, that has a happy ending. Well, so that's a project where I um, I was doing stand-up in, uh, at the Comedy Store, and I met uh, a comedian named David Connolly, and uh, he and I became friends, and we've collaborated on a bunch of weird little projects together over the years. Um, and he does this like Armenian boot camp in Glendale with a bunch of people, um, where they like are in some old gym and they just like exercise a lot, I guess. Um, and 
one of the guys he met doing that was this guy, Lou Mustillo, who's an actor who had been on, you know, all, I think, nine seasons of Mike and Molly. And Lou lives in a, like a, a house in Atwater Village where, that he's rented for 15 years and over the course of living there has created this like crazy Rococo tiki bar in the backyard. And like, he's just always entertaining people back there. And he's got this sort of cast of characters that are sort of regulars, but there's always weird people stumbling in and crazy misadventures happening. And Dave was like, we should make a show about Lou's bar. And so I was like, you know, in my mind, I was like, I don't really know. It's just a place, you know, like that isn't usually enough for a show. So, but we went, he's like, just come and check it out. So I went over and uh, saw the bar and the bar is crazy. Like, you just can't believe that, that there's, you know, there's, I mean, now it's really, uh, it's, it's gotten even more crazy since then, but like, you know, he's got furniture and uh, just a million twinkly lights and all this stuff, like little seating areas that he's just created this like great space in his backyard. And Lou is this sort of curmudgeon guy from Buffalo who kind of hates LA and, <laughs> We had this idea that like, you know, that the, the bar is almost this like elaborate defense mechanism where he goes to hide from like, you know, as much as he loves his career, it's like constantly humiliating him. So here he can just like hang out with normal people and have like a normal life in L.A. And uh, Dave and his wife, Hannah, had met Ray Seahorn, who's the star of Better Call Saul, through the Armenian boot camp, too. And she had spent time <laughs> at Lou's bar. And so Dave and I wrote wrote like a short pilot for what we thought would be like a, a web series that would take place around this bar and sort of the crazy characters that that come through there. And um, and in the pilot, this head of a TV studio stumbles into the bar under the false premise that she's going to meet Amy Schumer there. And of course, Amy Schumer is not there. It's like Lou and everyone kind of like sitting around drinking. And uh you know, things go disastrously long, but out of it, she is like, maybe this is a TV show. And that's sort of how the pilot ends. And, um, you know, we made it in an evening in Lou's bar um, with Alfredo de Villa directing it, who's a, got sort of a commercial production company. So he was able to bring sort of a lot of sort of assets to the table. And, um, you know, it was one of those projects where like, Every step of the way, I've been surprised by how good it is. You know, it's like we wrote the pilot and it's like, oh, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty funny. And then we did a reading and I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty funny. And then Ray had tons of great notes and Lou had great notes and like it just got better every time. And then um, the cinematographer is this guy, Kimo, I think his last name is Lightfoot, and he's on um, Star Wars recently. And so it looks great. I mean, it's just, you know. Uh, it premiered at Series Fest, and it's funny. It was during the pandemic, and I was like driving across country with um, uh, with my family, and you guys had organized like breakout. You guys had organized like a, a meet and greet for like everyone in the episodic program, and then we had little breakout rooms. And I guess I was in the comedy breakout room, and Evan Shapiro, who at the time was at um, National Lampoon was in our breakout room and he was like, yeah, he sort of offhandedly was like, yeah, I mean, I really like that Cooper's Cooper's bar pilot. Like I'd work with you guys on that. And uh, I was like, wait, what really? <laughs> and so um, I had, I had met him on a panel. We had both sat on the series fest panel at South by Southwest. So oh I actually, 
Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. So a few I years had, ago. <laughs> yeah, I had his email address from those like group emails. So after after the breakout room, I emailed him. Was like, "Hey, are you serious about this? This would be really fun." And so he helped us, you know, develop the um, the show a little bit more. He had some really good ideas. He's got just so much so much experience. He was able to bring a lot of like fun ideas to it, and. Um, you know, ultimately, we made a deal with AMC to um, air five episodes of it on their sort of, they have like a digital incubator. I honestly don't totally understand how it's going to work, but we are planning on making five episodes at the start of next year, which David and I have been writing with Ray and Evan and Lou. And it's, it's been just like super fun. It's been challenging because you, you know, to write an eight minute episode where um, something crazy happens and the expectations change during the course of the eight minutes and like all the secondary characters' storylines are serviced. And it can also be shot in like a night. It's, it's all a pretty interesting challenge, but it's, um, it's been really fun. It's been really, really fun. So you're writing five new episodes or will you reshoot the pilot episode or is the idea that the pilot the will come plan is to reshoot the pilot and write four new episodes? Got it. And then the idea is that there will be some sort of like branded partner who uh, will help underwrite the cost of the show. So, I mean, it's amazing how I mean, the thing that's really surprised me is how um how hard it's been to like get that commitment from anybody to like, yeah, we're going to actually make this even with like Ray Seahorn coming off of better call Saul and having so much heat and the, the pilot premiering at South by Southwest and series fest and getting lots of nice attention. But um, the other thing that has surprised me is like when people say like, Oh, you know, you hear this sometimes in conversations, they're like, Oh, the network is really behind this. Like, I really have felt that all through the way that like there have been people at AMC who've just stuck with it through thick and thin, even when it sort of seems like it's falling apart. They just like pick it up and gather the team together and, and really have, um, you know, kept kept it in play, which has been just been really fun, really nice. So uh, so you also started your own podcast somewhat recently, yeah. maybe in the last yeah, two, yeah. two years. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I mean, I really was just curious more than anything else, you know, I mean, part of it was like, I, it's the, the podcast is called the drunk logs and it's like a, a recovery podcast where guests come on and they just tell their stories of like how they, how, how it was before they started using and then like what their life was like when they started using and then what it was that sort of changed everything for them and how their lives are now. So, which is pretty standard like uh recovery narrative and it's a great three-act structure so like every guest comes prepared with like a three-act story which is amazing and um you know i would hear these stories in in aa meetings and um and i would just like want to you know interrogate people you know and you really don't necessarily get a chance to do that and 
you know, AA is anonymous. So, you, so people would tell stories like, oh, I was in a crack house in St. Louis and now I've got a hundred people reporting to me. And you're like, wait a minute, how did you get from that? You know, and I just, wow. so, I mean, it was really a, a lot driven by curiosity and then also just like curiosity about the form. Like, you know, what do you actually need to start a podcast? And, um, you know, and would it work? Would it be interesting? I was just like curious, you know, um, there is this like uh, quote that a writer friend of mine told me from the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, where it's like, follow your curiosity rather than your fear. And I think that that is really uh, just a, a great way to go through life. And, um, you know, so I was like, Love I'm going to make this podcast. And it's been I mean, it's been amazing. Like there there are definitely been times when I'm like, you know, I sort of feel like, oh, I, I now know how to make a podcast and like it's connected with an audience and it's been satisfying and maybe I should move on. But, um, you know, then people listen to it and they, you know, they write me to say how much it's helped them. And that's just like not something oh, wow. I was even trying to do. So that's pretty, um, that's been pretty great. Um, how long have you been doing this podcast? We, so we've, uh, we started and launched it in May. Right. Um, and we did 10 episodes and, uh, we are now into our second season. Right. Um, so I'm still figuring out how to do a podcast. You yeah. Know, any, any tips? Well, we'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I find the hardest thing is like finding an audience. You know, I think that that is like really the, the challenge is like, I mean, I've just been sort of s satisfied with a small audience because it's an engaged audience, which is great. I mean, it's really nice to have people uh, to have the, the feedback, but, um, <clears throat> how often do you release episodes? It's funny, you know, I, um, now I do it whenever I feel like it, I but like it. <laughs> when I, when I first started, I was like, I, I, I was so unclear about how it works that like, I thought like iTunes might reject it. And so I put it through, I made one episode and put it through the like process of submitting it to iTunes. And then I sort of forgot that I'd done it. And then one day I was like, I should see if that I ever made it onto iTunes. And sure enough, there it was. And I was like, oh, I guess I have a podcast. <laughs> And so I frantically started making <laughs> new episodes. And then at that point I was doing them, I sort of in my head, I was like every 10 days. And at the end of the, um, sort of, I made 12 episodes cause it's like 12 steps of recovery. And at the end of the 12 episodes, I sent out an email to, you know, my email list being like, oh, my first season's done. It's been, it's been great. I mean, literally every episode's kind of amazing in its own way. And, um, Marshall Louis, who was a filmmaker and is now like the chief creative executive at Wondery, the podcasting company, emailed me and he's like, hey, I listened to some of these. They're amazing. Uh, we should do this podcast. And I was like, what? Like, that's a, like, does that, ha does that does it really happen? Like Wondery calls you up and is like, hey, we want to do your podcast. And uh, obviously they didn't work out. <laughs> I'm still not sure why. Like Marshall hooked me up with their partnership guy who's like, yeah, we do partnerships, but it's like with Ellen and Aziz Ansari. <laughs> like, like I was just clearly like too, like it just didn't make sense to him at all, like what Marshall was trying to do. So, um, but he was like, look, if you really want to build this, you need to release an episode a week. And so I did a second season of an episode a week and I was like, this is too much. Like, I don't really have time to do an episode a week. Um, so now, and then I, I think like every two weeks is, is generally what I go for, you know? So, and, and I mean, promote it here. You can find it on iTunes. 
anywhere yeah, else? Yeah, it's, it's anywhere you get podcasts, it's the right. drunk logs and um, lots of lots of I mean a lot of comedians are on it because they're open about their recovery and then you know, people from all walks of life. I love that. Amazing. So we talked a little bit about Whitewater Productions. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved there and, and what are you kind of working on now? Uh, so I I had, after I worked at Phoenix Pictures, I went and I worked for, I mean, I worked for Phil Anschutz for five years, made a lot of movies there. And then, God, we got hit with like the writer's strike and uh, the sort of digitization of Hollywood and everything's changing so rapidly. And um, the kinds of movies that I had been making, which were expensive, awards-driven films for grownups, like really weren't being made. And um, I had met this guy, Trent Broin, uh, who had been like a, um, I think he'd been Josh McLaughlin, who was a sort of well-known first AD. He'd been his assistant on Sahara, which was a, a Matthew McConaughey movie we made at, at uh, Phil Anschutz's company. And Trent reached out to me and was like, hey, what's going on? Do you want to have a cup of coffee? And I was like, sure. I was just like sitting at home doing nothing. And he and I had a couple of meetings and he was like, hey, you should meet this guy, uh, Rick Rosenthal, who uh, founded Whitewater Films. And Rick and I met a couple of times. And then he offered me this job to sort of uh, be a producer here developing projects. And um, it's been amazing. I mean, it really is very much more hands on than anything I had done because the films, you know, we spend here on a film what at my old jobs that we would spend on a script, you know. Right. Um, so and uh, the first movie we did was a movie called On the Ice, which made it into Sundance and um you know, the next movie we did was a movie called Fat Kid Rules the World with Matthew Lillard. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's a side of the filmmaking experience that I'd always wanted of like, um, you know, really being there on set and figuring out, how, you know, the day to day logistics of how you're going to make a film and then you know, taking the film through the festival process and trying to figure out like who the buyer is going to be like all of it. I had watched all of it from William Morris way back in the day, but it was, and it was so something I always had wanted, wanted to do. And like, you know, the festival circuit had been so important to uh, the work I did at Phoenix Pictures. We were always trying to find filmmakers who were, you know, uh, breaking new ground. And so, uh, you know, to actually like have a hand in that was, was exciting to me. Very cool. Are you working on anything right now that you can talk about? <laughs> we have a movie coming out Friday called Small Engine Repair that uh, John Polano wrote and directed based on uh, his stage play, which is a sort of it's a thriller, but it's also a meditation on like contemporary masculinity. Um, and it has a big twist in it. It's really fun and smart. You know, and then we're developing a lot of projects. You know, we have a lot of like we're doing some, you know, more like conventional television where we're like, uh, you know, finding IP and finding writers and finding directors and stuff. And um, so and we have a movie out on Shutter called Boy Behind the Door, which I already talked about that we uh, made right before the pandemic. How do you find the projects that you're working on? It's all relation. I mean, it's almost entirely, you know, people friends of friends, agents, friends, um, and then, you know, stuff that we get excited about, uh, you know, that, that, um, you know, you see a news story or an article or something that you think, oh, this might, this might be a, 
a cool movie. Um, and filmmakers. I mean, you know, so much, certainly with, with independent, lower budget independent movies, it's like, it's all about the filmmaker. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's so rare that you're like, at least for me, that you find a script and then you're like, oh, we're going to like find a director and then make this for less than a million dollars. It's almost always like a filmmaker has written a script that they want to make for a million dollars. And then, you know, at least at that point, you're you're evaluating something. You've got a real sense by looking at their work of like, what is this movie going to be as opposed to like, well, if, you know, Steven Soderbergh directs it, it's one thing. And if, you know, uh, you know, some other filmmaker directs it, it's something completely different. You know, you really get a sense of like what the project is that you're evaluating. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, before we wrap up, I have one last question that um, we've been asking all of our guests. Um, if you could have worked on any television show in history, what would it have been and what would you have done on it? I mean, I would definitely be a writer. <laughs> I would be a writer on whatever this series is that I'm going to choose. I mean... It's so hard because there's been so much great television lately. But the sort of comedic touchstone for me is really MASH. Mm. That's sort of, I mean, even though there's a lot of it that's like dated and um, politically incorrect or whatever the word is <laughs> that you would use, um, that sense of like the stakes being so high, it's life and death, but it's also hilarious. I mean, that's really, um, you know, where I love, I love the comedy of that, you know, that, that like, you know, out there on the wire and still pretending everything's going to be fine. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Gosh, I haven't seen, I haven't seen MASH in a long time. I feel like that, that should have been a good uh, pandemic uh, watch. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've definitely heard, I haven't watched in a long time either, but like as a kid, like the final episode of MASH, oh I gosh. sat by myself in the kitchen while my family ate dinner and just like said goodbye to like these people that have been my best friends for like the past 10 years. Me too. I felt, I, I felt so, yeah, it's t exactly that. I felt like I just lost all my best friends they were all <laughs> right? leaving and going on their own way. And I was, uh, and I wasn't sure what to do, but, uh, uh it's such a great answer. Well, Nick, thank you so much for spending the time and being here with us. Oh today. God. Thanks so much for, for having me. It was great. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. SeriesFest is a nonprofit organization and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up-to-date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.